we talk about financial conflicts of interest a lot at the BMJ, and we've taken the decision that our educational content, the things that will really affect practice on a day-to-day -day level, should be without them. We also talk a lot about non-financial conflicts of interest, but those waters seem much more choppy and difficult to navigate. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and to discuss what we should be doing there, I'm joined by the authors of a new Head to Head, just published on bmj.com. Arguing that it's important to tackle this issue are Wendy Lipworth and Ian Kerridge from Sydney Health Ethics at the University of Sydney. And arguing that it's maybe not as easy as we think is Mark Rodwin from Suffolk University Law School in Boston. Um, Ian, Thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Wendy, hello. Hi. And Mark, um, greetings. Greetings. <clears throat> um, so my first question um, is really sort of maybe to frame this a little bit. Um, and uh, Ian, Wendy, this is over to you. Um, you know, I've got a sense, as I said at the beginning, that this might be a problem. But do we have any actual evidence um, that that people's undeclared sort of positions on things might actually be affecting you know the science that that we um, we base all of our medicine on um, I think that well first of all I think it's fair to say one of the points we would probably agree on to begin with is that there's a lot less evidence a lot less formal evidence of non-financial interests and conflicts of interest influencing science and practice than there is in the case of financial interests. The evidence is obviously not as clear or as systematic, but I think there is still evidence. Um, I think you can, and I think taking a step back, it's important to uh, make the point that we're not just talking about intellectual commitments. You're not just talking about interests or, you know, interest in the sense of something someone is interested in or something someone believes or um, a hypothesis they might want to hang on to and and, um, and demonstrate. We're talking broadly about uh, interests that stem from personal relationships, um, personal desires for things like status, uh, respect, professional advancement. Um, so I think it certainly makes, even though there is no systematic evidence of those things influencing science and medicine, I think it makes very strong intuitive sense that those things would. Yeah, and, and, and in fact, if you, I think if you go out, you know, onto the street or into the laboratory or into research centres or into hospitals and you was, were to say to researchers or clinicians, you know, look, do, do you people, are you influenced more in, in your research or in your practice by a desperate desire for a, for a $5 sandwich supplied by a pharmaceutical company or the desire for, for status associated with their recognition or the desire to get a paper or intellectual progression? Everyone recognises that the latter rather than the former is much more determinative. So, so, so the, you know, the on-the-street test, if you want, is that people would suggest that things like status and authority and legitimacy are, are much more of a determinant than money, and particularly people who already have money. But but the other thing is that is that if if you say, well, look, are there clear examples? I think you can point to clear examples. Um, uh, I, I work as a as a stem cell practitioner, so I'm a, a bone marrow transplant physician, uh, and I'm I have an interest in in all types of stem cell research. 
And, and if, if you were to say, well, look, what's been the major determinant of policy in relation to stem cell research really worldwide, the answer is not financial commitments or financial interest. The answer is religion. And so, so we know, for example, that, that objections from the religious right or from Christian groups um, in particular in the United States, in, in, in my country, in Australia, were, were really sort of uh, profound in determining where funding went, what research was done, um, whether we pursued an entire field of research, so whether we pursued embryonic stem cell research and human cloning. So we have a very recent, very important, highly definitive example of a non-financial interest that profoundly changed the research landscape. Mm. So, I mean, that's a that's a good sort of position to 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 start that from. Um, Mark, you had a you took a position in this that I mean, I I come much from the more from the world of science, um, uh, perhaps like uh, Ian and, and Wendy do, um, and and your sort of legal position on that was um, was quite surprising. It's something that I hadn't actually thought of before. So, could you take us? You know, through what you think is the problem with trying to to talk about um, intellectual positioning as opposed to financial conflicts of interest. Well, let me first say that I, I agree that people can be influenced inappropriately or biased for all sorts of ways that have nothing to do with money. But the difficulty with lumping all of this together under the category of a conflict of interest is really twofold. Uh, the first is the conflict of interest is a legal idea that's been well developed for a couple of centuries at least, and actually goes back further in, in the law of fiduciaries. And it has a defined meaning. Uh, and there have been particular ways developed to address these. <clears throat> and it, it's never been meant to cover all biases or all distortions or all risks to research or clinical practice. Uh, and so there's some problems when you try to use a concept to put everything into it. Uh, and it leads to some confusion. And the second problem is that I think there really is a fundamental difference between the financial conflicts of interest that influence judgment and the divisions in uh, loyalty, which are what conflicts of interest are traditionally defined to be, and all sorts of other things. And the, the difficulty is you may, not these authors, but other authors have suggested that they're all of the same type and that they're all equally dangerous. And that, I think, is going to undermine uh, um, a workable system we have to deal with a certain kind of problems. So mm. I would be glad to address those other issues, but I think there, I think there are other ways to do it. Mm. So I, I, just on that, you know, do you think that it's useful then to maybe delineate this a little bit more? So... Um, Ian talked there about uh, particular religious positions that, you know, might have been unstated yet affected the way that people um, acted when it came to to doling out money for for research funding. Um, you know, it, is that a subset that you you think could fit into that framework? Yeah, that's a good example. I mean, I think there's 
no doubt that if you have a religious view about the origins uh, and start of life that says that it begins at conception uh, and that it's unethical <coughs> to interfere at that point, that's going to uh, affect your views of spend cell research. But I think it's so evident and clear, I'm, I'm wondering why we have to use the notion of conflict of interest there to, to discuss it. I think it's clear that such people will have a view about stem cell research and be uh, for regulating it or preventing it in a certain way. It's not that I don't want to address it uh, or say that it, it shouldn't affect who's selected to, to serve on a decision-making panel. Um, it's just that I don't think that you need to use a conflict of interest framework to do it and that when you do, then you get other kinds of problems. So here's one. What happens if you're an advocacy group uh, that has been working to promote child nutrition or um, adult nutrition across the world? Um, and then there's an issue that comes up about uh, nutritional content uh, of certain kind of foods. Well, you might say, Maybe this group has expertise because they work on nutrition. Or you might say they have an intellectual interest and therefore they should be disqualifying for a, petition, uh, a position because uh, they've advocated to, uh, on, on the issue of nutrition. And I'm quite worried about that, that second approach. Hmm. Okay, so um, Ian and Wendy, um, I mean, that, that seems like a, a sensible argument that trying to regulate these in the same way as financial conflicts of interest might lead to to problems down the way do you do you agree with that um not i don't think we do i might just go to some of the earlier points first and then we can get to the point about whether we should be managing things these things as conflicts of interest or treating them as something completely different um, I think just I just wanted to point out that um, we completely agree with Mark on I think at least two points. One is that it's very important not to conflate bias with interests and with conflicts of interest, whether they're financial or non-financial. Um, interests and associated conflicts are a risk for bias, but they aren't the same thing. So I think we agree completely that that, that conceptual distinction is important, and not everything that's a bias should be referred to as an interest or as a conflict mm. of interest. Um, the second point I think uh, we agree on absolutely is that the existence of non-financial interests and conflicts of interest should not be used as an excuse to not manage financial conflicts of interest. That's highly problematic and to the extent that people are saying that we think that's misguided and probably disingenuous and should be um, you know, strongly uh, countered. Um, with, with respect to the issue of the definition, um, perhaps because my background is not in law, um, I don't feel as strongly that a definition that's been developed in one domain should necessarily be transferred to another. Um, uh, whatever we do here, we're going to be developing a stipulative definition of conflict of interest. And I think, I mean, I think there is probably, there's an argument for using a legal definition because, as Mark said, it has been well worked out, it's been thought about, objections would have been dealt with over many years and decades probably. So we don't want to start from scratch. But similarly, I think there's an argument for 
defining things in the way that, that they make intuitive sense in a particular domain. And if people in medicine are thinking about these things as being interests and potentially conflicts of interest, then I think it's equally problematic to just say, well, we need to exclude all of that from our definition. Mm. So those are some of the conceptual points. I might hand over to Ian to talk about the issue of whether these should be managed as conflicts of interest and what the downstream effects of doing that might be. Yeah, th thanks, Wendy. Yeah, look, I, I think there's a, a really fundamental problem with Mark's supposition that if you think about non-financial conflict of interest or try and address them sensibly, then you will exclude people with an interest and therefore lose their perspective. But that's simply not true. I mean, just because you can identify a non-financial interest, and that could be an intellectual one, it could be a cultural one, it could be a faith one, it could be just passion or commitment to an issue. You know, for example, you know, the, the involvement of, of um, you know, parents of, um, of or relatives of somebody with Lou Gehrig's disease or, or with a particular kind of neurodegenerative disease in, in seeking funding for research or trying to direct it. Of course, you don't want to lose those perspectives. You don't want to lose the intellectual commitments. You don't want to lose the expertise of these groups, even though they may have an interest in the outcome. Right? And the reason there is that, is that you don't have to only exclude them or deal with those interests by recusal or by exclusion. There are lots of other ways to deal with them. You can you can put them on the table and you can make a judgment about what you do about them. Now, sometimes um, it, it may be appropriate to say, look, yes, there's a, there's a really um, important and valid perspective you have there, but it shouldn't play a role in policy making in this situation. In other situations, it may. Financial interests the same. There may be situations where you can say, look, here's a here's a, a pediatric researcher who has an interest in this issue. They have a strong intellectual commitment, but they have some share ownership. And then you would say, okay, we don't want to lose your valuable perspective here. What we'll ask you to do, though, is to give up your shareholdings. Right? And then you can continue to participate. So you don't necessarily need to lose anything except where it's important that uh, that you can recognise that those interests may actually have too much of an interest or may be creating bias, may be directing research inappropriately, may be creating problems, in which case it's appropriate to actually exclude those positions. If, if I could give a, I mean, it's again, this is going to be drawn from the, um, from the perspectives of, on the one hand of personal positions or the other of, of faith. If I have, um, uh, again, a a family of, uh, of people who have a daughter with Friedrich's ataxia or a, a neurodegenerative type condition, and they've got a particular interest in stem cell research. And I use this example because this, this was a real example from the United States debates around embryonic stem cell research. Um, you don't want to lose that passion, that commitment, that drive to get research funding. But, but if that drive or that commitment is leading to research that is biased or badly constructed or moves beyond proof of concept to generate results that are invalid, that's a problem. So, so you deal with it by making sure that the science is better, that it's designed more appropriately, that you exclude bias, that you have peer review, that you have independent assessment. So you can get the perspective, you can get that value, you can get that enthusiasm and that commitment and that drive, but it doesn't determine the science. If, on the other hand, you have a, a value or commitment or, or interest that actually is not particularly important, 
right? So there is no benefit from it. And it may actually um, uh, drive policy or research in really profoundly um, corrupting ways, then it would be appropriate to, to exclude it. I mean, if, if I'm looking at research into blood safety, right, then what I don't want to do is say, I need to have a Jehovah's Witness on my panel. So somebody who thinks that we actually we shouldn't be doing any research into into this kind of issue, or or I, I won't, um, if I'm looking at policies in relation to distribution of blood products, then, then I won't need a Jehovah's Witness there. If, however, I'm looking at policies about how we deal with refusal of blood, then I do want somebody with an interest there that's faith-based, like somebody with a Jehovah's Witness and faith perspective. So in each case, whether it's financial or non-financial, you'll be clear about what it is, and then you can make a judgment about how you deal with it. And in that sense, non-financial is absolutely no different to financial interest. Okay, Mark, so then... Um so if we sort of try and take it away from that that exact legal definition that you talked about and and expanded it into to the way that Ian talked about it there, would you feel more comfortable with that? Do you do you have the same objections to you know talk about someone's I don't know what intellectual hat they're wearing? Um, do you see that differently? Well, I think if you're trying to select who should serve on a committee, there are all sorts of things you need to think about. And it shouldn't be eliminated to whether they have a financial conflict of interest or have a religious or ideological view uh, or other things. There are all sorts of questions about who makes someone's up. Um, in, and I would think if you think you don't think an individual is a proper one to serve on a panel or a review committee because they're so biased and it's very clear from their writings and their whole orientation, that point can be made quite explicitly just by saying, look at this person. This is what they do. This is what they write and they say. I don't think that's the kind of person that should be on a panel. And then leave it at that as opposed to trying to go through a very complicated a process of everyone disclosing every interest in, in their writing. And I think you're ultimately going to get a system that's very hard to implement and work well, and that it's going to lead to less careful oversight over a problem that's already very difficult, the financial conflicts. But I want to disagree with what um, Ian said on one point. We have in the U.S. been using recently the idea of intellectual interest to exclude people in ways that I think are inappropriate. For example, Dr. Sidney Wolf, the founder and for a long time director of the Public Citizen Health Research Group, who's worked on drug safety for 40 years, uh, was screened off an FDA panel or an advisory panel supposedly because of an intellectual conflict. Um, and I find that very bizarre. Sure. Um, Ian, Wendy, um, when, uh, as Mark sort of alluded to there, you know, the things that you've talked about have been, seem fairly concrete, fairly sort of delineated, whether it's a, a religious affiliation or a fact that maybe a family member um, has uh, a condition or, or is taking a drug or, or whatever. Um, 
But for some things, uh, you know, trying to unpick the the intellectual foundation, you know, where people have come from, how they've created, or how they've come to 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 come up with their position, um, would be really hard. So, uh, you know, do, do you see this as being a sort of de- delineated thing? Is there a, a way? I don't know, a, a, an upper boundary of of what we should consider thinking about when it comes to, to talking about um, that intellectual position? I think there's no doubt that um, intellectual positions are perhaps more nebulous than the receipt of money or gifts. Um, and I think for that reason, it's quite important not to conflate non-financial conflict of interest with or non-financial interests with intellectual interests, because in a way, they're the hardest case. So I take your point that there are non-financial interests that are more or less uh, definable, measurable, uh, more or less visible. And I think that the sort of nebulous intellectual commitment is, is the hardest case. But even there, I think you can certainly have conversations about it. Um, this is a discursive process. It's not one where you define in advance exactly what would or wouldn't count and what would or wouldn't warrant various forms of management. Um, But I can't see any harm in doing that through the lens of conflict of interest. In fact, I think that's a kinder and more respectful way of doing it than saying, well, you're that kind of person. Um, At least it puts it into a category that has a a framework around it. I think in medicine there's a bit of a tendency for people to feel ashamed of having conflicts of interest, which I don't think they should. Um, so in a way, it would be great, I think, if we could normalise it and include more things in it precisely so that people would be happier to talk about it. And so they're not that kind of person. They're just like everybody else who has all of these uh, commitments that might or might not be relevant in a particular context. Mm. And, and Duncan, look, I, I, I think Mark's points are really important ones. And, and, and as is often the case in these kinds of debates, there are lo- lots of areas of agreement here. Um, but, but I'd make three points. The, the first is that I think we need to be really clear that, that even financial conflicts of interest, defining them and managing them is, is not quite as simple as it may seem. I mean, f- just as a you know, simple example, do we, find, do, do, do we decide that a, a significant conflict of interest kicks in with a, a $10 lunch, with a $20, a $50 lunch, a $1,000 lunch, a, a $5 glass of wine, a $200 bottle of wine, um, with shareholdings of, of $50 or shareholdings of $20,000. And, and so different groups around the world have tried to deal with in different ways by trying to draw clear lines, if you want, between where um, money becomes important and where it's an acceptable part of interactions. And, and, and drawing simple lines like that is always, to some extent, arbitrary, although I would accept Mark's point that it may be necessary in some ways. The, the second is, is that examples of poor practice or poor thinking, uh, I think, don't create a strong case for um, uh, rejecting non-financial conflict of interest and thinking through it, through it seriously. I think the case that Mark raises of Sydney Wolf is a deeply problematic one, and, and I think we would be just as critical of that as Mark is, is that, uh, you know, poor thinking about... Um, financial com- non-financial interests and the way that they are managed is doesn't create an argument for ignoring them. And and the third 
maybe is a, is a more lyrical one. And, and that is, and it goes back to how you introduced this sort of discussion. And um, I think it's probably true that the waters are more choppy and more difficult to navigate in relation to non-financial conflict of interest. But that doesn't mean that you don't go out on the sea. And particularly if your job is fishing, you have to go out on the sea you have to deal with them, and you have to deal with them in an appropriate manner. I'm going to come back to that in one second, but um, just to pick up on uh, what you mentioned about, both of you now have mentioned Sydney Wolf. Um, and this is something that I've wondered about. You know, we're beginning to to understand that people's you know, sort of intellectual tribal affiliation can really affect the way that they receive and and um, process some new information uh, uh, and I wonder slightly I worry slightly that by pinning a badge on someone that says this is my intellectual position and then this is my argument it will uh, it might exacerbate that problem of uh, of people not you know or ignoring one side of the argument um, do you worry about that uh, Ian uh, I, um, well, maybe I can go first and Mark, I, I think Mark would say yes, so, so I'm sorry if I'm jumping in, Mark. The, um, uh, look, I would say yes also, um, uh, and, and again, the response to that is to say, well, look, um, uh, people shouldn't be labelled in such a way that you don't think more rigorously through what it is they're, they're saying. So the attention should be not on people's positioning or their uh, the club that they belong to necessarily, but what their argument is, number one, and number two, what impact it has on their thinking, their policy policymaking, um, uh, and the way that they um, direct activities in whatever domain that's under consideration, whether that's policymaking or research funding or academic work or um, assessment of the work of others and so forth. So, so, I, so I think it's reasonable to say, for example, um, uh, look, you know, person X, Bob, Kevin, what have you, um, you clearly have an intellectual commitment here. You've been working on this for a long period of time. Um, uh, you know, can you sort of reassure us that when you're assessing the work of others is that you're doing that in a, in a fair and uh, scientifically appropriate and equitable manner? And you'd expect that of peer reviewers for journals. You'd ex expect that of peer reviewers for um, research to declare their own interests and then to apply uh, rigorous and non-biased standards to assessing other work. And it would seem very appropriate in this situation as well. So, so I wouldn't see a case, for example, for excluding Sydney as long as Sydney said, look, I'm, I'm um, willing um, to treat at face value the arguments put towards me. I will respond to them appropriately and I won't respond to them on the basis of heuristics or bias. I will respond to them as a scientist. Can I just add to that? I, I'm not entirely sure that I would be as comfortable as Ian is with taking people at their word if they say, yes, I can, yes, I've, I've got this particular passion, but I can manage it. But I think there are still ways of including those people um, in the same way that Duncan, I'd imagine you as a journal editor would sometimes seek out peer reviewers who have specific biases and intellectual commitments, mm. but then you use that to your advantage. You don't, you, you know, but you, and, and you would definitely want to know about that, um, but you use it to your advantage. You say, I want to hear that particular perspective because it will help me make an overall assessment of this manuscript. So um, I think it's, it's, I don't think you would just take people at their word, and I don't think there's any harm in having that conversation 
when you're talking about conflicts of interest? When else would you have it? Should you have, we'll talk about conflicts of interest and what, now we'll talk about people and their personal biases. Um, and I guess that's where perhaps Mark and Ian and I would, would disagree is whether that label of conflict of interest or potential conflict of interest and risk of bias should be applied in that context. Mm. Um, Mark, just then, Ian challenged us, and I suppose as as a journal that that has to navigate this, we are the the fishermen on those choppy waters. So, um, so as a as a last point to wrap up, uh, what do you think uh, should be the next step for us? What do you think the BMJ should do about uh, about this issue? Well, <clears throat> I guess the BMJ is in the business of publishing articles and 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 promoting. Um, clear thinking about things, so it should continue to do that because it does it well. In terms of its own internal policies, I want to distinguish what the BMJ does and what society needs to do. And if the BMJ wants people to declare their background interest and the like, I think that's fine for them to do that. But there is, for society, some value in not suggesting that the law is on the same status as others. Many of these issues are dealt with because there is law, and it is the law that starts imposing the standards on individuals, on institutions that have not followed the practice. And that's so whether you look about informed consent, which starts as a legal idea and then is discussed in ethical or moral terms in, by doctors as well. But there's a base, and there's a base of thinking about conflicts of interest in the law. There are mechanisms to enforce it. There's the use of courts and the like. And there is a little risk if you say, well, we've got this legal idea and we've used it in a certain way, and now it will be redefined by any group to include more or different or lesser or different kinds of things. It will make it harder to work. Um, as an institution. So I would say, to summarize, the BMJ should look very carefully at the biases and the suitability of people and, and think about who should be excluded and why. But it should also, at the same time, uh, be clear that when they're doing that, it may apply some standards that have to do with conflicts of interest and other standards which have to do with other reasons that people may be not um, a neutral or uh, an appropriate or um, a suitable reviewer or decision maker. Thank you. And um, Ian and Wendy, do you have uh, any ideas about what, what we should be doing next? Um, Duncan, I'll leave it to, uh, to Wendy to say what the BMJ should do. Um, uh, but I just ha I have to make one comment, and I'm not sure whether... Um, this would be useful for the podcast, but um, um, but but look, I think on on one of the issues at least that Mark raised, I, I think there is a difference between us. So so I I don't think, and I and I think this is it does go to part of the problem that we may have with Mark's argument. Um, uh, I, this doesn't begin and end with the law. Um, the the law rests on ethical ideas. It rests on values. That's where the law comes from. Um, so consent doesn't begin as a legal idea. Consent begins as based on respect. It comes from respect for individuals, for self-determination, for rights, for human dignity. And those, those values, those ideas substantially predate thinking about 
consent as a legal concept, both consent in research and consent in medicine. So, so I think it's 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 not not true that 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 this begins as a legal idea. There's a legal formulation which is very clear, but these rest on ethical grounds. These rest on ethical principles and so forth. And and conflict of interest, although it's 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 harder to pin down, arguably is the same because it rests on the idea of what an interest is, what commitments we have, and they're social ideas and they're ethical ideas. So I would suggest that, that we can absolutely attend to the law, to treat it respectfully, to look at how it's delineated things and to see how it works, but we can also attend to the ideas behind it and that underpin it. And Wendy, over to you for the BMJ. <laughs> so for the BMJ, I guess um, I think... I think we're all in agreement that the BMJ needs to be interested in things other than how much money a person's making or how many shares they hold. So the decision that needs to be made now is whether that gets dealt with under the rubric of conflict of interest or not. Um, I would argue for putting it under that heading for the reasons I've given so far and that I can't really see the harm in not in in doing that. And this, and another reason I would say that is because I think that managing non-financial or thinking about non-financial interests and conflicts of interest under that same category can actually enrich the way you think about financial conflicts of interest as well. So all the problems that you would have in developing your policy for managing non-financial interests and conflicts of interest could alert you to potential problems that you have with managing financial conflicts of interest as well. But having said that, you know, there's no reason you couldn't have a box where you ask people to declare their financial conflicts of interest and then to declare other commitments or loyalties they might have. But you would still have to do the work in the background of thinking that through. And I can't see any value in um, having thinking about one as conflict of interest and the other not. But I think the main point is that I think the BMJ needs to formalise in some way, if it hasn't already, um, how it deals with these non-financial interests yes and uh and to mark's point is you know start thinking at least start thinking about uh where to make this um formal where to keep it as an ethical discussion ian wendy mark thank you very much for for joining us today on the podcast My pleasure. My pleasure. you've been listening to wendy lipworth ian carriage and mark rodwin debate whether we should be treating intellectual interests like financial ones. Their head-to-head is called Should We Try and Manage Non-Financial Interests? and is available now on bmj.com. That's all for this podcast. We'll be back next week finding out about why Scotland is going to be measuring health and well-being as an economic measure, and what the country is doing to lose its reputation of being the sick man of Europe. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss out on that. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.